0: Can have a seat. Well, good morning. My name's Hank Atchison. Uh, I'm teaching here at Safe Haven. I'd like to welcome you. And as you already know, uh, we're in James five one through six. So if you have your Bible, if you wouldn't mind, just go ahead and open there. And if you don't have a Bible, there's a couple on this back table back here. Um, So feel free to grab that. And and that's our gift to you. So you can keep that and use it um, as much as you'd like. But if your device doesn't work in here and you don't have a Bible, as Brandon said earlier, it will be on the screen behind us. And so in James 5, 1 through 6, I want to give you a little recap. Um, I'm not going to give you a whole lot. And so if this is your very first Sunday, um, since we've been in James, I encourage you either, well, first and foremost, go back and reread James 1 um, through 5 here and and kind of be brought up to speed yourself. But also um, our sermons are online as well to kind of bring you up to this point. So I, unfortunately, I don't have the time to give you a tremendous amount of overlap in uh, to kind of bring you up to speed on where we are today. But I will tell you this. James is the half-brother of Jesus who is writing this, and he's a pastor writing to Christians. He's writing to Christians who have been dispersed because of persecution. And so I've said this many times throughout this teaching through James, is that these Christians, their lives are not going the way that they thought they would go. Um, and so James... is is addressing suffering Christians who, some of them are being directly persecuted and oppressed, some of them indirectly, but for the vast majority of them, they're dispersed. And so they're away from their homeland, they're away from what they know. And and all of this persecution and suffering has come about because of their identification with the person and work of Jesus. And so this letter from um, a pastor to these different churches is I mean just keep in mind it's from a pastor's heart and I don't even know what the, if that means anything to you but here's what I mean by that it, it's coming from a man who loves them deeply and he is more concerned about their soul than he is about their physical well being I mean he has addressed some incredibly practical things and it's not that the physical things aren't important and that we don't need them and that they're not even blessings from God because they are But the main thing that James is concerned about is that these Christians, in this, some of them, the darkest moments of their lives, evaluate the authenticity of their faith. Is it genuine or not? And so this entire letter has been written really with that main theme test after test after test after test of the authenticity of their faith. Today is no different. If you remember how the last part of chapter four ended, he started with this same phrase as he starts the first part of chapter five he says come now if you have the NIV some of your translations say listen Um, and simply what it means he's saying hey listen up and Jesus used verily verily if you remember when we journey through the book of John we saw that a lot all that is doing is just bringing the readers or the hearers kind of up to speed and so he's used some different addresses along the way to start a new thought or a new conversation but he's wanting to get their attention because he knows what he's about to say and last week, um, he addressed this, this mindset and this thinking that is certainly outside the walls of the church, okay? I mean, the is going to go today. This, this thinking is certainly outside the walls of the church, but what James senses and knows and sees is this thinking has crept within the church. And the thinking that he addressed last week was this just really arrogant way that we all at times, if we're honest, live our lives and plan our day and plan our calendars and plan our money and vacations and everything As if God doesn't exist, while all along acknowledging that God does exist, but we become practical atheists. We live every single day as if He doesn't exist and His will doesn't matter. And I know that's not true of all of us, but it was evidently true of some of those in whom James was writing to. And so he's just like he has the whole letter, he's pressing towards their hearts. Not just some trite formula to say if the Lord wills or if the Lord doesn't will. And and that makes us spiritual and makes us okay. But are you truly dependent on God for every breath and every moment? Like is that true of you? Do you think that way? And So it's a way of thinking and he's contrasted it in this way. The wisdom of the world and the wisdom that's from God. The wisdom that's from God is fully dependent on God and recognizes the need for God. The wisdom of the world, quite honestly, is fully dependent on man. And is banking on the strength of man and the power of man and the ability of man. And as I said last week, I think all of us deal with that at some level, in some capacity. I think it's a necessary part of our sanctification. Sanctification is just a fancy word for us becoming more like Jesus. Once you surrender your heart and life to Christ, you, then, you are saved to the end, but then you enter this process of the Spirit working in you, making you more and more into the image of Christ. And so don't expect to be saved or to be a young Christian and to all of a sudden start thinking in this way. As you journey through life, God graciously prompts you through His Word, by His Spirit, to evaluate certain things. And that's exactly what James is wanting his readers to do. It's what he's wanting us to do, is to evaluate our lives. And so this section today is a warning. And it's a warning against the dangers of pursuing wealth. Now, if you want just positive encouraging, you're going to have to turn on Caleb when you leave here. No, but seriously, I mean, there's some really, really strong warnings here. Okay? Okay. But it is positive and it is encouraging because I don't know of a greater grace than someone who's willing to warn you of the danger that looms if you don't repent. That is loving. That is, in fact, the most loving thing that anybody can do. What would be unloving is to not address the obvious sin in an individual's heart and life. And so it's a loving thing, again, from a pastor's heart that he addresses these things. Now, he, I mean, some of you might think he could have used a PR man. Gotta use to go between to help him with some of these phrases. But don't think that way, because these are reality. And the reality of what it means to come before a holy God under your own merit with your own riches and your own righteousness. There's nothing more horrific than to stand before the God of the universe on your own merit. But we don't have to in Christ. And so if you don't hear the gospel anymore in this message, I want you to hear it now. The gospel is this, is that we come to the Father, the God of the universe, the infinitely holy one whose whose wrath is just as right as his love and his mercy. And the only way we stand before this God without fear is by the blood of Christ. By trusting the finished work of Jesus, by trusting Christ's obedience, by trusting that Jesus saw wealth the right way every time. By trusting that Jesus lived the life that you and I could never live, He, the irony, died the death that we deserve. And so for the sins that we have committed in regards to wealth and that we will commit in regards to wealth for those of us who are believers, Christ took that on Himself as if He committed them. But it didn't stop with the death. He gloriously rose from the dead. And so to place your faith in Christ is not only to identify with Him in His life, in His obedience, not only to identify with him in his death. But praise him. It's to identify with him in his resurrection. And as surely as Jesus came out of the grave. We too can walk in the newness of life. So the gospel is the encouragement. But before you can get to the encouragement of the gospel. You have to see how horrific sin actually is. And that's James's aim here. So um, there, there are tons of scriptures that speak to the dangers of wealth Jesus in fact taught on money more than he did anything else I don't have time to give you all the cross references but I do think there's one New Testament scripture that kind of sums up James's teaching and Jesus teaching on wealth and it comes from 1st Timothy chapter 6 9 through 10 it says this Paul writing to Timothy who is being commissioned to to be a pastor to to be a local pastor but to those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and to a snare, and to many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now let me be clear here. Wealth is not a sin. And so if you're like me, you're going to want to leave here with like you're going to want to leave you with a list of things to do. Like, I need to have this much money in my bank account, and this makes me spiritual. Or I need to have this kind of house, and then I'm, um, I'm the Christian James is talking about. Or I need to drive this kind of car. Don't even... y'all. You that know, That is a misconception and a misunderstanding, and it's an incredibly legalistic way to think. You're wanting to do certain things to earn the merit of God. The sin here is not the wealth. Some of the most generous people I know are wealthy. And so, again, a danger to this is to think about all the people who are rich enough to have a beach vacation on Memorial Day that aren't here to hear this. Right? That went right over y'all's head. I mean, I was waiting I was waiting for that. Um, but seriously, the danger is for us to think about everybody else and not ourselves. Here's the reality. The desire, which is what Paul's after here, it's not to those who have the riches, but to those who desire to be rich. You can desire to be rich and be poor. And so the dangers that Paul warns of, I mean, yeah, that Paul warns of here and that James warns of in James and that Jesus warns of in his teaching is not necessarily that you are rich, it's the desire to have it and what you hope that it will bring to you. And so it is a trap, but most of us think we can handle it or would at least like to try, right? the pursuit of that wealth is something that can bring great ruin to our lives and misery. But it doesn't always appear that way. It doesn't always seem that way on the front end. In fact, I would argue that it never seems that way on the front end. Wealth can alleviate some temporary pain. Wealth can um, relieve some temporary stress. But wealth can also create a tremendous amount of problems and temptations and sin as well. And that's the warning of the This passage and so a couple of things just kind of as a foundation before we dive right in who is this warning to there's only two possibilities the first one is this and if you've done any reading in James and you've seen both of these uh, the rich in the church is who he's addressing to the rich outside the church the first thing I I would say is he has to be addressing the rich in the church he's addressing the poor in the church because he's writing this letter to the church Now where people get confused and caught up in this and and why they want to make a distinction is because of the pending judgment that he mentions. So the letter is to the rich in the church and the letter is to the poor in the church and the warning is for the church as well. But the judgment that looms is not the judgment that is for those who are outside of the church. And so for the rich outside of the church it is a very strict warning that if they continue to bank on riches and hope in riches, and ultimately what he means, if you think riches are your salvation, this is what it looks like for you in the final day. And so it's a warning to believers of this mindset that is prevalent outside the walls of the church that evidently has crept in to the inside the walls of the church. And he's reminding them of of what wealth can mean. For the final judgment, if you in fact trust it for your salvation. Now, there were three main indicators of wealth in James's day. First one is this: Jeremy Field. Yep, first one is grain. Grain. Um, you guys are familiar with grain. Now, we may there may be some farmers in here. There might be as far south as we are. There's probably some folks from Greensboro that, that are farmers, or from Tuscaloosa. Or you might know farmers. Whatever that looks like. Um, and, and so here's. Grain was an indicator of wealth. And so, like, if you go home today and you open your cupboard, for the vast majority of us, what's in there? There's food in your pantry, right? That's wealth. Now, that's not sinful, but that is wealth. And so, there are people all over this world. In fact, if you make more than $25,000 a year, you're in the top 3% of the richest people on the planet. And so, for the majority of us, we are rich. In regards to the rest of the world. But this idea of of, of grain is an indicator of wealth, just like if you can go home and open your pantry and there's food there. The problem with it is, is this is that these rich had silos and silos and silos filled with grain, and they had it stored, and that's why James says in verse two, Your riches are your grain. It is rotted, but it is an indicator of wealth. It's never used, but it brings some sort of comfort and satisfaction or self-glory just because you have it. Another indicator of wealth was clothing. If you remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he talked a good bit about clothing. Um, And and it's no different in our day. If somebody walks in here um, with nice clothes on, you're going to make an immediate assumption that they have money. Some of you, like myself, have a really tight rotation of clothes. A pair of jeans a week and about four shirts that are in the same rotation. And so you probably start noticing the same stuff. If you, see, you, know, if you come to church, he wears that shirt the fourth Sunday. And you're right. <laughs> but here's the point. If you go in your closet right now, for the vast majority of us, what's there? That's wealth. It doesn't matter if it's one shirt or 25 shirts or 200 shirts. It's wealth because there are people on this planet who go into a closet and there's nothing there. So, the warning say, don't bank on your clothes. Don't have an excess of clothes. Don't self indulge in this area of clothes because something as silly as a moth can destroy them. Think about that. Did you ever think that a moth would be a grace in your life? That nasty little creature that has a larva like you. I don't know if you've ever experienced it but I have multiple times where you go and you open your pantry even if there's rice or you open your closet and moths have found their way in there and they've eaten holes in your clothes. It's incredibly annoying, isn't it? But it's also a gracious reminder of that everything we can see, touch, smell, hear, and feel is temporary. That's James' point. It's your heart. It's your attitude towards those clothes. What... When you put those clothes on, do you feel like you have a new identity? Do you feel like you now have more value? What do you expect those things to bring you? And the danger is, with grain and with clothes and excess of those things, they are really little gods in our life. they are little idols that we hope bring us something that they're never designed to bring us. Third, gold and silver. Now James does use an interesting word here. Um, He says in verse 3, your gold and silver have corroded. Some of your translations say rusted, but if you're familiar with gold and silver, and I I know James was, you know that um, metals like this are not subject to literal rust. He's just using this irony to make a point. It makes sense that grain will rot. It makes sense that clothes will decay and moths can eat them. But what about silver and gold might be the argument? What about these two things that are highly valuable and that last forever? James says, even in the last day, they won't withstand the judgment. And I'll be honest with you guys. I don't really know what he means by your gold and your silver have corroded. I get that. I don't, and their corrosion will be evidenced, evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Somebody might say, oh, well, you can't take that literally. It's just a symbol. It's just symbolic. Well, the next question you should ask him is, well, what in the world is it symbolic of? Because I don't want any part of it. If you're using your flesh being eaten like fire to symbolize something, it's still a safe assumption that it's not something that you want to experience. Are we on the same page? Y'all tracking? But he is talking about a final judgment. And I think the end of verse 3 does help us wrap our minds around this warning and, and the seriousness of this sin and the trap and the snare that wealth brings. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you. And so it's, it's almost this mental picture of we stand before God in, this, in, in judgment at the judgment seat. We stand before the judge of the universe and we're bringing this evidence of our own work and our own effort and our own riches and our own ability and our own strength. That we've compiled up over the years thinking that we've been so successful and done so well. And James's warning is, the very thing that you've piled up for your good will be your ruin. It'll actually destroy you. And so whatever this imagery is of all your riches and everything being thrown into this one big melting pot, (laughs) that's not funny, it's really not. It's horrific. It's a warning. It's a gracious warning so kind of a thesis statement for these six verses. It's twofold. For the unbeliever, wealth can be a dangerous trap that leads people to eternal destruction. And so if you're in here this morning and you're not a believer and you you, you acknowledge that and you know that, you don't believe the Bible, you don't trust in Jesus, the warning Scripture gives you is if you place your trust and faith really in anything other than Jesus and expect it to bring you satisfaction, to ease your comforts, to ease your pain, it will pass away and you will face destruction. That's the warning of the Bible. For the believer, wealth shows what we treasure. And so, for me personally this week, I've just evaluated my life. I mean, I know that I'm a born-again believer in Christ and I know that this judgment isn't looming out there. Like, I don't fear that because Christ took my condemnation. Christ took my guilt. Christ took my shame. Christ took my punishment. But part of our sanctification is evaluating our own hearts and going, what do I love? Like, what earthly things do I treasure? Maybe it's not grain, clothing, or... Uh, gold and silver maybe that it's it's relationship maybe it's our children maybe it's our spouse maybe it's whatever you fill in the blank maybe it's our hobby what am i banking on to bring me the satisfaction and joy that only god can bring ask myself these kind of questions what do i celebrate what are the things that cause my heart to rejoice what makes me clap what makes me laugh what makes me cry Those are the things we treasure. And and again, part of our journey is our hearts by God's grace and through His Spirit is being molded into this Christ-likeness. And this is part of the journey. So, I've asked this question and it's sort of answered for the rest of this sermon. How can wealth be a trap? Because it is a trap. It's not a sin but it can be a snare and it can be a trap. And the first way is this. It causes nearsightedness. I don't know if any of you fish. Any of you fish? Only one fisherman in the whole... I don't believe you. That is not... A, that's not true. I'm not going to ask you how many fish you've caught. So you can raise your hand, okay? So have you fished? Is it in a contest? No one is, is if you fish with artificial bait or even if it's not artificial bait... I know this is silly, but it really did help me understand a little bit more about this trap and this snare and this nearsightedness. When that bass sees that red shad worm floating in front of his face, there is absolutely this first reaction and this nearsightedness of, man, he's close and I see that and I want it and I need it, right? It's nearsighted, like it's so close I can just grab it. I mean, what trap doesn't work that way? There's deception involved. It looks like it would be good for my stomach. It looks like it would be good for my well-being. I mean, a bass could go, "Hey, I could take it, take it off to the other baby bass." I don't. I mean, I'm pretty sure they don't do that. But I'm just saying. Like, there, there's all these things we could explain away in why things seem so good, and it causes this nearsightedness. I, I wonder if for these Christians, because we know they're suffering, we know they're oppressed, that they're thinking Jesus if it just brings more oppression? Like, why follow Christ if it's just going to mean less friends? And from their standpoint, they've been pushed out of their homelands and they're looking at all these people outside the walls of the church that haven't acknowledged Christ, that from their standpoint, if they had a Facebook world, it looks like everybody's life is way better than theirs. Edited lives, is what social media is, for the glory of man. But but from the church's standpoint, they're looking out, going, Man, I mean, is this really worth it? Like, like should I? I mean, is it that big of a deal to follow Christ? I I, I just want some relief. If I just pursue riches in this way or just maybe deny Jesus in this one little area of my life and I can go around and I can accomplish this and do this, it will, in fact, bring some temporary relief. I think that's why James is so forceful with these analogies and these warnings about what judges it's a trap. It's not true. And God has graciously given us all of these indicators that this life is not it. You may have a new car now, but I promise you if you keep that car long enough, it will be old and it will smoke and stuff will leak out of it and kids will spill stuff on it. It's coming. Our bodies, this world, everything, it's passing away. But it's so hard because it's what we can see. Wealth can be a trap because it causes near sight. And secondly, wealth can be a trap. And I know this this sentence is worded a little weird. But it can bring temporary ease, which is true. It can and does. By God's grace, it can bring temporary ease. But here's the trap. And at the same time, misery. I've already said this once, but I think it's worth saying again and we'll move on. The very thing that they trust in for comfort, James's warning, is that it will result in their final ruin. That's a snare. That's a trap. You think it's going to bring you one thing, but in the end it brings you not just another thing, but the exact opposite. And church, I, I probably don't have to give this disclaimer, but yes, we need things. Yes, we need money. Yes, we need vehicles. Yes, we need houses. Yes, it's not a sin to have those things. It's not a sin to have nice things. The sin is what's in our heart and what we're hoping for out of those things. And if we're hoping for these things to bring us what only God can bring us, then we in the last day. Next. Even though it's a blessing, that's the wealth, and it is. It can be used in an ungodly manner or a sinful manner. James lists, there's definitely more than three, but he lists three things here. Examples of wealth being used in an ungodly manner. And some of you are about to start elbowing your spouse. If mine was in here, I would elbow her on this first one. There's no reason for you to tell her I said that. So, just throwing that out there. But the first sin that he mentions, you see it obvious in verses 2 and 3, is hoarding. Hoarding. Hoarding is a sin. Now, I know what you're thinking. I told you, Randy, throw that stuff away. Amen. Amen. It's a sin. And Randy's going, but it was grandma's and I love it. And I I can think about, again, don't get super caught up in the stuff as much as God wants to do with your heart. Because you cannot be a hoarder and still be a sinner, right? And still love money more than you should and expect things from money that it can't ever bring you. But one of the sins is hoarding. And, and these rich people in, in James' day, they had so much stuff that it was actually rotting. Their silos are full. They go to get a bag of grain and it's molded. What good are ten changes of clothes if you go to get something out of the closet and it's moth-eaten? I mean, what good is that? And I want to say this before we look at a couple of Old Testament passages. The problem with hoarding is that on the simplest, in the simplest ways the most practical things, when you hoard something, it's not being used for God's intended purpose. If you hoard clothes, and you, you just have more clothes than you can ever wear, or shoes than you can ever wear, or grain than you can ever eat, and you're not sharing it, and there's people that you know need it, it's a sin because it's, that's, those things are not being used in the way that God designed them to be used. And it does something for our Whatever, psyche, soul, identity, to know they're there. Proverbs 11:24 says this: "One gives freely, yet grows all the richer." Now, catch that. There's some beauty there. That's actually the life that the gospel compels us to, is that the gospel compels us to give freely, and what we gain in that, and what we see in that now is, is not material things, necessarily. It's a spiritual wealth. Don't misunderstand the Bible in thinking that, well, I'm going to give $10 so I can get back $1,000. That's not Scripture. That's preached, but that's not Scripture. The wealth that Christ brings transcends any physical wealth, period. If He sees fit to give you physical wealth, it's just pointing to Him as the greater wealth. It's a pointer. Every dollar is a pointer to Him. But watch this. Another the opposite, withholds what he should give. and Here's the irony, and only suffers want. So the hoarder that's just doing this, nobody touched my stuff, I'm going to build more storehouses for all my stuff, they actually suffer want. Isn't that crazy? It's a trap. It's a snare. What you're after is what you gain by giving freely. What you're trying to or what you hope doesn't happen in your life by withholding things actually happens in your life. and will be enriched. And the one who waters will himself be watered. The people curse him who holds back grain. But a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. Next scripture, Old Testament. Ecclesiastes Solomon says, There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Listen to this. I mean, you wouldn't think this would be what he says. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Again, the grievous evil is hoarding. And what he hopes to happen in his hoarding, he actually loses. And at the end of the day, what does he have? Nothing. Next. New Testament story. All right, so this is Acts chapter 5. The New Testament church is vibrant and growing. They're seeing the Spirit of God in the lives of people. They're generous. That's one thing that marked the New Testament church at this point is literally like if I had $10, it's Julie's $10. There's no, if Julie has a need and one of you has what she needs, then it was a no brainer. It was a no, I mean, there was no questions asked. Like the, the church cared for one another. But watch what happened. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. The problem was is it was insinuated that they sold all of it. So again, this is why we can't get caught up in. Well, I'm going to sell some of it and keep this part. It's not, it's not about what you sell, what you don't. It's about your heart. And so if you didn't know their heart, you would look on the outside of this and go, Oh man, they sold most of their land. That's great. But Peter said, Ananias, art to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. He just couldn't let go. He just couldn't trust that if he sold all of his land, that God would be enough. So his faith was ultimately in his riches. And you guys remember what happened to them? God struck him dead. On the spot. Next, not only is it hoarding, but also cheating people out of money. I think this is self-explanatory. Um, and, and, and here's what I want to say just under this part. It's always wrong to cheat others for your own financial gain. And sometimes your cheating of others' money does not look like actually underpaying them or physically stealing from them. Sometimes your own way of cheating others for your own gain is by lying to them, manipulating what you think you have to say in order to get that raise or to get that job. Wealth does crazy things in our hearts. It's a trap and it's a snare. Here specifically, the rich landowners were underpaying the workers. And the rich landowners were getting tremendous wealth and tremendous gain and underpaying The workers. And that's what James is calling out. It's an injustice. And not only was this an injustice. I think as the church of the living God. We have to know and understand this. That we are never to be a part of an injustice. Ever. Any injustice. We above all other people should always stand up for what we know. Scripturally is the right thing to do. And the honest thing to do. In any context that people are mistreated. Ever. We are to be a voice for injustice, against injustice. But this love of money can creep in, do things and say things and partner with people that are actively engaging in some sort of injustice and that's a sin. Last one, self-indulgence. He doesn't specifically, well he does say that in verse 5. He says, you have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. I couldn't help but think of the story from Luke 16. You remember the story of Luke 16, 19-31? Lazarus, the beggar, and the rich man. The rich man um, enjoys everything the rich people enjoy from the food, from the living, from everything. Every aspect, the clothes, all of it, the comfort that it brings. And then you have Lazarus this, who actually eats the crumbs from the rich man's table. And as the story goes, they, they both die and the rich man goes to hell and the, the poor man, the beggar, goes to heaven. The story is not, it's not that if you're rich you go to hell and you're poor you go to heaven. The moral of the story is, is that the rich man indulged himself in his life on this earth. And he gathered as much as he could absolutely gather for himself, worshipping himself, glorifying himself, loving himself... And in the end, none of that, not only does it not matter, but it brings about destruction to where the rich man, I'm sorry, the the beggar Lazarus, the poor man, once he got out of this life, he then experienced the satisfaction and joy that he'd always longed for. In the parable, the rich man just wants to have a drop of water. Isn't that funny? He probably had enough wine to to... I mean, he couldn't drink all the wine he had in his bins. He couldn't eat all the food he had in his silos. But then he leaves this earth and he just, just one drop of water and then the poor man Lazarus is living in abundance in the bosom of Abraham. One last Old Testament scripture and we'll wrap this up. Ezekiel 7.19 says this, They cast their silver into the streets and their gold is like an unclean thing. Thinking about self-indulgence. Their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with it. For it was the stumbling block of their iniquity. I love that Ezekiel says they can't satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with it. Because that's just an analogy of, of what we're after. I mean, you remember the woman at the well in John 4? She has a, a literal real physical thirst and she's going to get that physical thirst met. But then Jesus tells her of another thirst that she actually has. And it's a spiritual thirst. And he offers her the living water, which is himself. This is Ezekiel, the problem. same thing for those of us that set out for riches to, to fill our stomachs and to quench our hunger and to quench our thirst. What we'll realize at some point, if the Lord wills, certainly whenever we stand before him, is that our stomachs are in fact empty. And we're thirsty and none of the earthly things can satisfy those needs or those desires. And so he says, for it was the stumbling block. It, it's the wealth. The wealth was a stumbling block for their iniquity. Friends, wealth is a trap. It's not a sin. But it can absolutely lead to sin and more sin and more sin a snare and a trap now just a couple of things in closing the band can come on up there's a few questions um, that I think are helpful in this up as we kind of are led into a response time Um, your wealth is not a sin but sin does come through wealth and so what are some helpful questions to ask ourselves And to evaluate our own hearts and lives. And the first one I think is this. How do we get our wealth? I mean don't answer that. And and I'll I'll just tell you up front. I don't know where the line is. I mean. There's not a clear indication of. When you reach this level then you're rich. Or you reach this level and then you're poor. And so that's why it's not helpful at all. To try to evaluate based on what you have. You evaluate based on your heart so it's not important at all for you to evaluate other people based on what they have versus what you have and think you know their heart and so a safe honest question is how did you get your wealth is is there any aspect of how it's dishonest that that is i mean, I mean just say it i mean have you stole are, are you are you cheating people Again, it, it feels painful to think about those things and to address those things. But what the gospel says to that and it speaks into that is, is that that sin, if you're a believer, Christ took it. And He offers this tremendous gift of repentance and invites you back to Himself to turn from that sin and that wickedness and make it right and trust Him. And so the, the proper response to that is not to just run out of here in guilt and shame and just try to sweep it under the rug and act like it never happened. I mean, you have a God who knows everything. He knows you completely, but listen to me, He loves you completely. Another question is the attitude of our hearts toward wealth. I think just a simple way to think about that is, how, I mean, do you love it? I mean, do you love it? What do you expect out of it? I mean, why does it, why if you are, if you're so driven for more wealth, why is that? Just evaluate. You know, ask yourself that question. I mean, as a pastor, I'm asking myself that question. I mean, as a, as a church leader, I'm asking myself that question about how we use the funds and the money that you guys so graciously give. I mean, what, what do we want to be about? What is our attitude towards the wealth? Is it to advance the kingdom of God? I mean, that's what we would say, yes. That's what we want to do as well. And so in your personal life, what's your attitude towards your wealth? Lastly, how do you use your wealth? I know what you're probably thinking. All right, here he comes with the offering plug. I don't have an offering plug. I think the Spirit of God can do what only the Spirit of God can do in our hearts in regards to our giving. But I think an honest question that we should ask ourselves as Christians is, and evaluating our own hearts and lives is how do we use the wealth that God has given us? You might say, Hank, it's only $10. Okay, how do you use it? Is there any thought at all about the advancement of the kingdom of God and how you use your wealth? Is there any thought at all about the injustice in the world? Is there any thought at all about the hungry people in the world? Is there any thought of all, at, at all about the people in this immediate community that have yet to be reached with the gospel of Jesus? And maybe the Lord's called us here to reach and you can't do it without money. Ministry costs. It's not, I mean, there's nothing that's free. So, I, I mean, if this offends you, I'm sorry, but part of being a local, part of being a part of a local body of believers is that not only do you give your time, but your resources. I mean, how do you use your wealth? And so, I'm just going to pray for us. Um, so if you would bow your heads. And as, as your heads are bowed, I just want to say a couple other things before I pray. It, it's, this isn't about having less as much as it is hoping in God more. The real question James asks here doesn't relate to your wallet and your bank account as much as it does your heart. and think it's about counting every penny or every dollar but it's about you counting Christ as worthy of you. you following Jesus in full abandonment and surrender and trusting him with every single aspect and area of your life so way of response this morning if there's sin repent turn from it believer part of communion is evaluating your own heart it's remembering the blood of Jesus and the body of Jesus on your behalf it's remembering Christ as your substitute and so before you approach the table believer repent of your sin be broken over your sin and praise God go back to the table and you take the juice and you take the bread and you're remembering Jesus and the body of Jesus that was broken and that was shed because of your sin and the reality that he saw wealth perfectly every time because he knew you couldn't so believer repent biblical repentance always leads to Christ exalting worship take the elements I pray that your heart just rejoices in who Christ is and what he's done if you're an unbeliever the communion table is for believers what we offer you this morning is not juice and a cracker what we offer you this morning is Christ so you're not going to do anything for any good for your soul by going back there and taking those elements if never trusted jesus as your lord i don't want to invite you to do that do it in your seat just begging the lord to save you recognizing him as the king of kings as the holy one who died in your place for your sin trusting him as your savior i'd be glad to pray with you or talk with you more about that let's respond to the